Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Hi, I'm Dr. Lolly, and you're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You. I'm an entrepreneur and a lecturer in UCD's Innovation Academy, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity. And I believe that entrepreneurs are both born and made. In this series, we won't be talking to the Elon Musks and the Richard Bransons of this world. We'll be talking to people just like you. Hi, and welcome to this podcast, An Entrepreneur Like You, with me, Dr. Lolly. And my guest today is the amazing Rachel Gotto. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Your name is one of those names that has been circulating around in my ecosystem for a little while with people saying, have you spoken to Rachel? You must chat to Rachel. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, especially to Yvonne Redden, because she put us together. But your name had actually come up in a, in a number of different circles, because I think when we operate, you know, we, we when we operate sort of as entrepreneur and as sort of solopreneurs and people that are sort of making it in our own field, we often forget that sort of, you know, there's a wider ecosystem out there, you know. So I was absolutely delighted to bring you into the Innovation Academy and uh, into the Digital Hub to meet my students in the Grad Cert. And I give them all a shout out to my lovely students doing the Entrepreneurship, Innovation and Creativity module. And uh, we had a lovely fireside chat there. So thank you very much for that. And I learned a little bit about you, but I invited you onto this podcast and radio show because I wanted to know much, much more. <laughs> so can we start um, at the beginning and to steal from Stephen Bartlett, you know, what is it that we need to know about you as little Rachel mm. that would help understand you now? Mm. Well, I suppose I said to your community that I stumbled back onto this planet uh, mm. in my late 40s and I'd been absent for a very, very long time due to some extraordinary traumatic life events. Yeah. And if we're talking about entrepreneurialship, I had that spark in me from day one, I suppose. I came from a family of achievers. Yeah. And so... When I was 23, I returned to Ireland. I'd been working in the service industry in the UK for a couple of years. And what I knew to be true about myself was I loved people. Mm. And so I had this really, really great idea. I know, I'm going to open a restaurant. Now... And had, where in Ireland were you at this point? I was in West Cork. Okay. Right down in the wow, south on okay. the sea. Beautiful place. Of all the places oh, to yeah. open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that sort of spark when you're 23 can yeah. carry a lot of weight if you have that spark to go with it, yeah. the energy. So I spoke to my um, parents and basically I opened a restaurant. I borrowed some money from yeah. the bank. Well, let me just pause for a second there. What made you think that you could do this? I just knew inside. Yeah. I just knew how to do it. It's really strange and it sounds incredibly arrogant. But, but you're allowed to be arrogant when you're yeah, young. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I just knew how to do it. Yeah. And so I pieced it together quite yeah. literally, bit by bit by bit by bit. I mean, even fitting a kitchen in a restaurant, you know. Yeah. I had people in and I was thinking, oh, yeah, I need that. Oh, yeah, I need that. And that must go there. And I was thinking laterally. Were you, were you basing it on, you know, things that you'd experienced in the UK and just kind of coming back saying, OK, if I put all those bits together, this, this might work? Quite simply, yeah. um, I'd worked in all departments apart from uh, chef. Right. And so I'd seen it all work together. I'd been a duty manager. I'd seen how hotels and restaurants function. And in my young mind, I thought, I can, I can replicate that. I can yeah. do that in my own small world. So simply I did that. And I think I opened in <laughs> July 1993. And um, I had somebody to cook for me, but actually it turned out they couldn't really cook. What was the restaurant called? 
It was called the Peer House Bistro. And in those Peer days, House the word bistro, bistro sounded very so exotic, I can tell you. Um, and where about, describe where it was located. So if I was to see it now. Yeah, it was actually quite an iconic building. It was a bright red house. Yeah. At the top of the pier in a place called Glandor in West Cork. Oh, and some of the listeners might have heard it because it's quite a famous place. It was yeah. called the West Cork Riviera. <laughs> and in the 60s, 50s, 60s and 70s, yeah. the um, ladies from Cork would um, come and take the air yeah, at Glandor right, and some right, rather right. interesting houses. And so we landed into West Cork because you could probably hear by my accent. I don't sound totally um, as if I come from West Cork. And so we came from England on a boat and my parents basically rocked up we're going to go to New Zealand and fell in love really with West Cork and literally the harbour they came into hang on a minute (laughs) (laughs) I know okay so let's let let's let's take this step by step so so I really get a clear understanding you were on your way from the UK to New Zealand via West Cork stopped in West Cork for a hot minute coffee a coffee (laughs) right okay are you how are you traveling we're travelling on a very large old Baltic wooden tra- um, trader. So if you can imagine... A boat? A, yes. A, can you imagine okay. one of those old wooden trawlers? Yes. So an extended out to about 90 feet and then to 110 feet with a bowsprit. Okay, bow now spread. this it's is enormous. making a little bit more sense yes. about why you came into West Cork for a coffee because you came <laughs> off a boat. Okay. We couldn't park okay. up anywhere else. Let, let, this is absolutely fascinating and I, I absolutely love the, the whole part about the restaurant, but there's so many questions that I have for you. So let's go back then to growing up, growing up in London? Uh, no, I, I was born actually on the boat. Born on the yeah, boat. Yeah, the rest of okay. the family were um, born in the UK and I okay. was one of the ones that came afterwards. Okay, so when you say born on the boat, was the boat moored in London? Where was no, the boat? No, it was born in West Cork. It was, okay, it was moored mm. there. So you were actually born off the shore of Ireland. Yes, I was quite literally. What? Uh, tell me about your family dynamic. Do you have any siblings? I have uh, three brothers who are living and yeah. we lost Dominic when I when he was 26. I was 25. We were very, very okay. close in age. And um, Where do you fit in that trajectory? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. I'm the girl, the okay. only girl. Okay. So it's quite, quite an interesting place to be because I was a tomboy and I had to fight my own corner oh, and nobody cut any slack. Yeah, so yeah. I suppose I was, I was already... So mum and dad are in the UK, decide to sail to New Zealand. That's mm-hmm. no small undertaking. So no. were they from a boating background? No. <laughs> and the adventure begins. <laughs> okay. What on earth, I mean, do you know what on earth possessed them to try and make that kind of move? I do. Okay. Um, I think... What Engl- year is this? This is 1968, 67, 68. Okay. England was already changing. Yeah. And... Summer of discontent, I believe. The summer of love, 67. Summer yes, of discontent, 69. Right, okay. There you go. You're right in the and middle. And the whole... I think my father, you see, he, um, he was a landscape architect and he'd returned a lot of the large houses back to lawn because they'd all been turned into... Um, you know, uh, veg gardens during the war. Okay. And so that was his job. And That's fascinating. he had a lot of staff and a lot of machinery. And I think what was happening was he was being broken into and there were thefts and there was, okay. you know, all sorts of things that he just didn't align to. And, um, and he'd been in the war himself. What but, ages were your parents at this point? Um, my goodness. My father was in his 50s. My mum was in her 30s. He was born in 1912. Okay. So he had been through a war. And I think that Wow. There was something to do with that. Yeah, the freedom also, and yeah, the escape. And also and the... not liking how he saw society breaking down right, because he'd right, come right. from another era. Right. Uh, you know, and I think he he had this, the grass is greener, you know, within him. And 
he, my mother was um, adventurous anyway, and she would have followed him anywhere. And so they bought this well, boat. Well, to have children and to agree to put all of the children onto a boat with no sailing experience and go to New Zealand. Yeah. Your mum was a bohemian, I think, you know, well, this sort of free spirit. They no? were very free-spirited. Yeah. And also they had become vegetarian and were part of the, fr- um, right. you know, f- uh, fresh for all and veg for all sort of movement. So they were already talking about sustainability you know, right, from that early hippie free, movement. Yeah, from exactly. that early yeah, hippie yeah, movement. Yeah. So it was already in the mindset anyway. And I think they wanted their children to have a better start and a more adventurous start in life. So born on the boat, so technically a home birth, a boat Te- birth. Technically <laughs> yeah, so, yes. Yeah. With a midwife from West Cork. With a doctor. A doctor. Yeah. So you. So let me, like step by step, they arrive in West Cork, they Doc, is that the right expression? You birthed, birthed, dropped anchor. I was anchor, going to say birthed, actually, literally. She was too big to go into the piers. So okay, dropped anchor, and then a doctor. Well, it must be radio communication at that point. A doctor was called from the mainland. He actually was a good friend of my parents. Okay, so my mum wanted to. Actually, what he did was he he came out and he said to my mum, "I'm not doing this here." So he made my mum go into a house at the pier. Okay. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, isn't it? So your, your mum birthed you in a house in the pier from yeah, the boat. from the boat, having rowed in. <laughs> How long had you been there, Maud? I don't actually know, okay. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was it weeks I wasn't or... born. Okay, yes, um, of course. I think they'd been there six months. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. It must have been some coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it must have been. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, so they're getting a sense now of beautiful West Cork. And of course, you know, an, an awful lot of people gravitate towards West Cork, you know, from, from the UK in terms of this alternative lifestyle. And we still see that now. We to, still today. see it today. And so you're now in West Cork. What happened to the whole, Aust- the whole New Zealand dream? Yeah, it's an interesting sort of end to that really basically I think my father was getting old yeah and there was a big storm and he'd bought she was called Joanna and they the bought boat, the boat. Yeah. Joanna was brought into the pier for some works I don't remember okay. exactly what it was and the storm came a, th- a southeasterly was the worst wind in west in Glandall and if it came in it came right over the pier right and what happened was she pulled there were big stone bollards on the pier yeah. for anchoring her onto yeah, yeah. tying her onto and she pulled two of the stone bollards and onto the deck and they fell through the deck no and then with the dropping tide she sat then onto them and basically she was held twice so in she, those days, wow, so she's stuck she was, and sinking. She was stuck, sunk and stuck. So <sighs> I, I remember looking out the window. It was the only time I ever saw my father cry. Oh, and God. she was a goner, really. And in those days, there wasn't the technology and they didn't have the money to... She just sank before your eyes. She sank before their eyes in Joanna. a southeasterly. And then she was towed up the estuary. And I remember seeing her every single day and she simply just rotted away over the years. Oh, that's And disappeared, disappeared back into the sea. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like one of those when you see a little... Um, it's so evocative. Isn't it? It's yeah. beautiful. So... so, she, so the the pier at Glandor and she's she's dragged past it and and off and just retired yeah. off retired broken off. yes with S- no purpose left up there with no one to talk to and you all moved into a house then we all moved into a house and my father began one of the first yachting chandleries in this country what's a chandlery something that supplies yachts and boats Got with it. equipment and so he began supplying the local fishermen with nets and floats and all sorts of stuff like that that wasn't his background though 
No. It was gardening, a yeah. horticulture. Yeah, he was gardening, a landscape Okay, architect. so he's an entrepreneur because so he's he seeing a problem to be solved and yes. finding a niche. That's exactly what it was. And I remember when I was a child, I answered the phone to this new thing. It was called CH Marine. And I remember as a very small child going, hello, CH Marine. You know, <laughs> and I remember somebody ringing from Tory Island at the north of Donegal. Yeah. I could not understand a word, <laughs> this man. I, all I knew, he was looking for something like floats. But anyway, I was good at answering the phone, even if I didn't yeah. know what I was doing. But it was a, really a family affair. And like it was a family business, endeavors. exactly. Yeah. Everybody was, my mum was packing nets and putting labels on and blah, you know, it went on. And it was a, then it, it grew. Yeah. And then they got a premises and then it expanded. It's actually run by my brother today and oh, no it's way. one of the largest chandleries. Yes. Tell me about growing up in West Cork then, because birth on a boat and straight in there, you didn't know anything else. You didn't no. know the UK at all. No. I think, Lolly, it was complex. Mm. We were different. Mm. And not that we were made to feel different. We were different. Yeah. And so um, it was an extremely difficult time politically if you think back to Northern Ireland the British Army had moved into Northern Ireland and so there was there was a lot of uh, innuendo and a lot of um, unsaid stuff some of it was said so being a British family in West Cork in the late 60s wasn't the easiest things yeah now the local people were amazing yeah um we were absorbed into the village and we went to the local schools but there was always an underlying sense of unease if 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 i can sort of put it into words of being different yeah and of course we didn't go to the church Right. We were slightly hippified. Um, we, which nowadays we, would have been fine. Would, in fact, it would have been very cool. Yes, yeah. it'd be very cool. But in those days, yeah. my mum made brown bread. Everybody else had white sliced pan. Okay. And I cannot tell you how I coveted that white. <laughs> I just wanted white bread. We had avocados and egg sandwiches. Back then, yes, they back were then. very exotic. I know. So, it we were different. We had goats and we had. Um, goat's milk. I don't know if you've smelt goat's milk, but my God, yes, it stinks. It, it you know. Um, Would you make your own cheese? We did all that. Yeah, we made yeah. our own butter. And we made our own yogurt. So so ahead of its time. Very ahead of its time. And I'm. I was so ashamed of that at the time. Oh, I just wanted to yes, be like everybody else. Of course, else. all but children now, do. Of yeah. course, I'm looking back with rose-tinted spectacles yeah, and saying, yeah. "Thank goodness." Yeah. Because it gave me a whole new insight into life and a whole new. Um, passion, actually, because one of my passions is is nutrition and nat- yeah. naturopathic nutrition. Yeah. Um, and I, I understood food from a very young age. And I learned how to be different because it yeah. was difficult being different. Were there other people in the village then at that time or around you at that time that, you know, that had a sort of a similar edge? Because it's, it's, West Cork is known for that right now. Mm. In the summer, probably, yeah. but in the winter, no. We were we were really in in West, in the depth of West Cork, yeah, and um, lived in a very small village, quite far from the city. Mm. And mm. even actually, a visit to Cork was almost like we were going abroad, yeah, you know, because sure. it was in those days a couple of hours drive, and you know the bad roads yeah. and that. So it was a monthly mission. And I remember my parents having shopping lists about ten miles long, mm-hmm. and the day was a real you know, structured event, nudist, yeah. you know, crossing stuff. And I remember holding my mum's hand and running, you know, with her at the speed that she had to go to fulfil everything before they headed back down yeah, it's real to provisions. the country again, you yeah, know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so a lot of self-sufficiency. Though. I wonder I wonder in all of that, you know, with the idea of sort of, you know, from the UK, we're leaving here, we're going on this grand adventure. And then, you know, for whatever reasons, 
a country claims you, mm. you know. Mm. Um, I, I Similar experiences here, you know. I never intended to move to Ireland. I, I came here from Australia and before that the UK, but I'd actually, I'd actually moved to Australia with residency. Mm. Met an Irish boy and then just suddenly came here for a hot minute 22 yes. years ago, yes. you know. So, <laughs> like, I feel that the... I feel that it adopted me, not me adopting it the mm. other way around. Is mm. that any sense of that for you? Not until I came back to Ireland having been away. Okay. I could not wait to leave because I felt in my DNA and in my soul that I was English. Yeah. I, I felt so different to everybody else. So it didn't feel like home. It didn't feel yeah, like yeah, home. Yeah. So I headed across the Irish Sea to England and for a while it kind of worked. But looking back, I, I, I was in the middle of the Irish Sea. I didn't, I was neither yeah. fish nor fowl. Yeah. So it was disappointing to go over there and really not find that I'd gone home. What age were you when you went back? Uh, I went back at 19, I think, for a couple of years. And so do you think it's possible you romanticised it because you never knew it? Yes, absolutely. Okay, and yeah. my parents spoke about it. And Such glowing terms. Absolutely. Even though they'd left. Even though they'd left. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the same. And also yeah. we, we were, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but my father always had the Queen's speech on on Christmas Day. Yeah. And it would be a very big thing. So Very controversial down in West totally, Cork. <laughs> I know. But also it was like little Britain. I mean, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that I could, I, you know, I thought sure. I was living in an enclave of it, you know. So even that made me feel as if I was British. And we went to York Minster. My parents came from Yorkshire. I remember going to York Minster, my mum saying, you know, this is where we used to go and this. So it was yeah. as if it was mine also. It took me many, many years to work out that actually... Actually, I, you're Irish. I was Irish. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm the most patriotic Irish yeah. person. I love the place. I will never leave it. Yeah. I'm passionate about Ireland. And but no accent. No accent. So interesting. It is so interesting. And... It took me a while, Lolly. I used to speak with an Irish accent out. Yeah. And then I'd return to this accent at home. Yeah. And I have to confess, I actually, I think I was nearly 40 before I had to make the brave decision not to blend every time I left the house. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it was a brave thing because people were saying to me, you sound a bit odd. <laughs> and I was saying, this is, this is actually my real speaking voice. Yeah. And... You know, I used to just put on the lilt and, you know, go down. Yeah, yeah and it's assimilation. It's yeah, trying to it fit is. in. It's and blending. Yeah, yeah. But I, I had to stop doing that because I was feeling disingenuous, yeah. you know. <laughs> and people, you know, and my family would say, you sound really weird when you go yeah, out, you know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I made a very mature decision then to say, OK, this is Rachel. Yeah. And this is who she is. She is Irish and she can have an English accent yes, and absolutely. still be Irish. Absolutely. And so that was great. Oh, God, it was a lovely feeling. Yes. You know, it was like coming home. I no longer had to be mid Irishy. I could just be Irish. So you were you were young enough then, you're nineteen, twenty, you know, to go back and sort of then sort of as the sort of scales fell from your eyes to put to borrow an expression, <laughs> you know, like you sudden to realise actually, no, this isn't the romanticized version of the place that I wanted. Went into hospitality. How many years was it till you then came back and the restaurant kicked off? Only about two and a half. Okay. So it really three. it was a quick jaunt. Very quick. I yeah. went I worked in a, I worked in a place called Tiringham, uh, North London, and it was a health farm. Mm. And actually, the interesting thing, I've just remembered this, I went there on trial for something and the chef wasn't there that day. And they said to me, is there any chance you could cook some vegetarian soup? And I remember making a thing called sweet corn chowder in a massive pot. Yeah. And they went and tasted it and they said, that's good, you can stay. And I thought, oh. Again, this is another example, I think, of the universe choosing you. 
So now you have us up to speed. We know exactly why you came back from the UK and decided, but you went back to the place you were from. I did. So this is the first time that you're going home. You thought you were going home to the UK, but actually you're coming home to Ireland. When you when you saw the place, what was it originally, the place that became your restaurant? It was a house that we lived in when we first came to Ireland. Oh my goodness, and it okay. Been, it had been left empty for... It's your house on the pier you took yes, after the boat? Yes. Oh, this is beautiful. Okay. And so I... The red house. The red, the pier house. Yeah. And it's bright red. And so it had been empty for probably about 10 years. And it was quite run down and needed a lot of work. Where doing. are the rest of the family? They're scattered to the four winds at this okay. point. Uh, yes. Um, one brother's working in the, in the company, one brother. Actually, no, they were. some of them were back. They all started their own businesses, okay. you see. And some of them lived abroad a lot of the time. Um Dominic was still with us at that point. Yeah. He'd been in the Caribbean. He was a transatlantic skipper um, from a very young age. He'd taken ah, the boat many gene. boats across. <laughs> yes, the boats. It's in all of us. Yeah. And so I um, asked my parents, could I do it up? Could I okay, build on this? Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I went to the, I shared this with your community. I went to the, I think it's called FBD. And in those days yeah. you could borrow money, but it was generally a cow you had to buy. So... Written on my loan sheet was something like 60 cows, but actually it was a loan to do up a building. And I bought a tractor, I think, technically as well. Yeah. So it's just great in those days when you could rock up to the door and just say, you know, I want to start a business. And I'd say, yep, how yeah. much do you want? Yeah. And so I got a builder in and we turned the whole building into three flats, a shop and a restaurant. Beautiful. Beautiful. And without any experience, I ran the lot. And it wow. was the most exciting, exhilarating, 23. 23. It was so fun. I thrived on multitasking at that age. Yeah. We're very good at anyway as girls, but yeah. I remember having one hand in the chip pan, you know, one doing this, sliding pans back to the Loving washer. Loving the energy of You know, it, yeah. and being in my element. And I actually ended up cooking. So it was breakfast, lunch and dinner. So you started with the sweet corn chowder and the health farm. And, and then, and how on earth did you end up becoming the chef as well in your own restaurant? Well, I had hired a chef and it just transpired that he wasn't up for the job. Okay. And so it was one of those, get up in the morning, look in the door and say, okay, I, I'm going to do this. I can do this. <laughs> so my mum was so clever. She found simple a simple menu that yeah. I could really easily do. Yeah. And... I, had, I actually didn't understand. I had a flair. Yeah. So for me, it was a natural progression to expanding. And of course, we lived next to the sea. The trawlers came in at Union Hall. We had access to fresh fish every single day. And yeah. I don't know if you ever remember eating wild Irish salmon. Very occasionally, sadly. <laughs> yeah. But in those days, yeah. it came in by the box load. Yeah. yeah. And so I sold grilled Irish salmon with a baked potato and a green salad. Mm. And I think it was something like 10 euros yeah. with homemade tartar sauce. And I had people coming out the door. And it was have, just yeah. simple food, easily prepared. And we had such a vibe going because actually we ended up as being an all-girl crew in this restaurant. And that created sort of a newspaper sensation. And before I knew it, <laughs> I had famous people like Jeremy Irons, you know, and coming yeah. in. And we played, you know, jazz music. Yeah. So really, it was the accidental success um, in so yeah. far as 
I just cobbled a few things together and it worked. Well, it's you and it's part of a, it's part of an extension of you because, you know, we love each other through food and we show, you know, we show how we care that in that same way, you know, and it's about creating community and connection. It sounds like, you know, the restaurants, you know, the restaurant was so ahead of its time. Your parents were ahead of their time. You were ahead of your time in doing that. So that was the 80s, right? So, you, you know, right. you know that it's nothing, nothing around in Ireland was like that at yeah. the time. The food in Ireland wasn't so great back then, you know, it wasn't a farm to fork and, you know, um, and this idea about sustainability and eating seasonally. And of course, there was a few pockets of it, but it wasn't well known. It's not embraced in the way we are now. We have the most incredible mm. food culture now. So ahead of its time and you, you know, creating your community and your vibe and your buzz. And of course, people coming to you for the experience and yeah. ex experiential eating out wasn't a thing back then either. No. It was eat to be fed. It sure you know, was. It, it sure was. And I think the fact that we were, you know, just giving home-caught fish, yeah. everything out on the plate, caught every day, you couldn't go wrong in that sense. Yeah. Now, I did go wrong. I shared this to your, your guys as well. I didn't know how to portion control. I was gung-ho and I was really generous no with they bottles. No wonder coming back. <laughs> I was great at giving away bottles of wine. You know, if somebody gave me a compliment, I'd say, oh, put a bottle of wine on their table. So that was my youth <laughs> playing sure, out in terms sure. of business. Um, but I walked away from that outside of the story attached to why I walked away, walked away. I walked away feeling competent in so many areas and, you know, feeling delighted that it worked. There's nothing yeah. nicer than having people wanting to be part of what you've created. And uh, I made so many great connections mm. and, you know, so, so many interesting and particularly the staff. I, I was I made a, um, a rule that the staff must never, ever, ever put up with abuse. It was just early yeah. feminism for me. Yeah. And so it was really fantastic and such a great feeling when one of the girls came to me and said, I'm, you know, I'm being treated very badly. And I went out and I remember saying, I'm sorry, this is an establishment where that doesn't happen. At 23, and Beautiful. I looked back and I thought, yeah. I was protecting my team. Yeah. And so I felt quite good about all of it, really. Tell us what happened to it. Yeah. It's kind of like I smile now and I, I move my mind uh, forwards. Dominic and I were extremely close. That's your brother. That's my brother. Yeah. We were just a year apart. Mm. And my mum swears she doesn't know where I come from. And she said, maybe you're his latent twin. You know, it's one of those kind of really... <laughs> yeah. We were peas in the pod. We went everywhere together. We shared beds when we were little. Yeah. And he went to the Caribbean and I went to Dublin when we split. And... He came back at about the same time that I was beginning the restaurant and he wasn't well. Mm. And um, What age was he? He would have been 24, 20, 25. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, he had to have some medical tests and it transpired that actually at a very, very young age, he had really, really advanced bowel cancer. I'm so sorry. So it's a blow and a blow and a half. Yeah. And we were alternative, Lolly. Mm. And... We believed that you could cure the body through um, natural means. Yeah. And um, he decided that he didn't want any conventional medication and right. he didn't want conventional treatment. And he said, I don't want to be disfigured. The operation they were planning for him would have left him potentially without a leg. Right. It was so extensive. And he was a beautiful, virile, gorgeous, handsome guy who loved the girls. Yeah. He couldn't take it. Yeah. So 
what happened was I just immediately went into taking care mode. So I leased the restaurant out to actually yeah. a chef I had at the time. And um, she took it over. And so Dominic and I went on a quest. And we travelled to Mexico, to mm. Tijuana, a place where there were a lot of hospitals that had moved south of the border. Seeking holistic answers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, we, we learned about some incredible therapies and... He had a lot of treatment. I think what I know now about oncology, which I have studied a lot, he was too young. Yeah. You know, people who are older who get it can often do it through diet and all that. He was young and virile. It was rampant. Mm. And so we didn't have any luck there. So in the end, we went to a place called Convis Time in outside Stuttgart in Germany to a, a very, very advanced clinic there. They did all they could for him. Yeah. And... I went with him everywhere. I was his his companion. And when we came back to Ireland between treatments, it was a, an extremely tragic day when a letter had come in the post and he handed it to me from his bed and he said, read that. And I opened it and oh, my heart was, I could feel. Do you know when you're so frightened, you can feel your heartbeat yeah. in your yeah. throat? Yeah. And I unwrapped that letter and I opened it and I read down it. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, it didn't matter. And I said, it does matter. And he said, I'm so sorry. And we both mm. looked at each other. And the letter had said, there's nothing more we can do. Yeah. Uh, he needs to be allowed to die now. So that was a, for me and for him, um, it was about, I think, about two months before yeah. he finally passed in his flat with me and my mum beside him. Wow. And looking back, Lolly, I would not have not looked after him. Mm. It was a privilege. It was my job. Absolutely, yeah. But the images that I was left with in my mind yeah. for the next 30 years, I would rather have not had them. Yeah. Because... It kept me in, in it kept me in a place of not living fully. A part of me was trapped in the images that I was left with because I fully understand that. I'm yeah. sure some people listening know what happens to bodies when they've got a yeah. terrible chronic disease. And his beautiful yeah. body wasn't the beauty anymore. And as a very young person, mm. I absorbed that. And so it's kind of mixed in that memory. Yeah. But I'm so proud that I looked after him and was so proud that I brought him through the places that other Such people privileged to have that connection it is yeah yeah it is it was all i could offer him what did life have in store for you after this yeah took a while mm. I, there's always a parallel story isn't there so we need to kind of reverse back, back to the restaurant yes let's yeah. go back to the restaurant so a young gentleman a young very nice gentleman <laughs> came in on a boat oh, should we sing a song <laughs> <laughs> it just needs an interlude of a song, this, doesn't it? So Nick Gotto um, was a fisherman. He was English and he was also a scuba diver. And he was scouting the coast looking for new scuba diving um, venues for his customers. And so he parks up and I even noticed him at the pier. I was just thinking, I noticed him. I didn't know him. I'd never met him before in my life. And he rocks. I'm getting a sort of a James Bond vibe yeah. in a wetsuit. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so he comes into the restaurant and um, he was had a beautiful speaking voice. And um, he said, do you know where I could stay this evening? And um, so I had a little chat. And when, when he left, 
Lorraine, my girlfriend, who was Dominic's girlfriend, said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I said, what? And she goes, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know that sort of... Yeah. And I said, oh, don't know what you're talking about, and went yeah. off and carried on working. Anyway, he came back that night, and he had dinner alone. And he kept engaging me in conversation, and mm. I was very busy, but quite happy to offer the advice or whatever he was Did he get a free bottle of wine? <laughs> <laughs> he did, actually. I gave him a glass of wine. I gave anybody I liked a glass of wine. So if you were listening and you were in the days of the beer house, if you didn't get one, I'm she sorry. I did you. love you anyway. <laughs> so really what happened was we developed a relationship. So how many times did he come back to the restaurant? He came back about three or four times. And then I wasn't there. Okay. And um, Were you I, told he was in? I was told he yeah, was in. Yeah. I, got a, I got the bell. I yeah. was up in the pub having a pint and I got the bell. Um, the Kieran, the owner, said, Rachel, Lorraine's on the phone. So I went to phone. She said, he's in the restaurant. He's looking for you. I told him you're in the pub. So <laughs> I, I sort of pretended I was Gorgeous. leaving and walked out. And yeah. uh, he said, oh, Rachel, would you like to have a glass of wine with me? So Fabulous. I did. And that was it. He became part of my life slowly. Yes. Yeah. And time. Nick and you fell in love. We did. Very quickly. Very quickly. And he was such a beautiful person and smart and adventurous. And he was at sea and he took me to sea again and it was just fab. Yeah. So he was around while Dominic was in his illness and demise. Yeah. Um, but I was away a lot. Um, but he had actually moved to my village at this point. Right. So we were a couple. Yeah. And so when Dominic died... Um, Nick said to me, we should really get married. Yes. And I said, I think we should. Mm. And so not long after Dominic died, we got engaged. And then a year later, um, in December, we got married. There is a very, very funny story about our wedding, but I don't think we've got time for it today. It is in my book, <laughs> Flying on the Inside. If you want to nice know the, the catastrophe <laughs> that I made of our wedding, Fabulous. read about it. What's it the is title of your dreadful book? Flying on the Inside. I'm still ashamed. Flying on the Inside. I am Fabulous. so ashamed of what I did, but I did it and I can't do anything. So you'll just have to read all about it. Oh, well, I love it. I'm like, I can't actually can't wait now. I'm not going to ask any questions. And so you got married and you're both living in Glendore. We're both living in Glendore and then Glendore, we got yeah. a house in Union Hall. Yeah. And I was was pregnant three months after we got married so wasn't really our idea then but yeah. it was great and it was do you know it's just it seemed like you know when we look for meaning in life and we looked for a sign it was like a sign yeah and I felt okay I'm being shown by the universe I need to live again and I need to put my energy and love into something else Absolutely. I was very very bereft so I've got this beautiful growing light in me and we were so happy. And I remember in the May, so we were married in December, in May I was quite pregnant and I remember watching him go out the harbour, that's Nick, from my mum's garden. Mm. And she said, how, is, how are things? And I said, I had no idea that I could feel so happy. I had no idea that this could be possible. And as I watched him go out the harbour, I was just so delighted. I had a natural life. I spent a lot of time on the sea. Um, we grew our own food. It was very simple. We weren't going to be millionaires. We were just going to be really grounded, earthy people. And we had a child on the way. And Nick had two daughters from his first relationship who were in our lives and we were starting to sort of make friendship and it was starting to become, yeah. um, you know, a second a family, family, a blended yeah, family. Yeah. And all things were looking up. And then one day... On the 24th of July, 1998, um, Nick came to me and he said, I'm taking, there were 11 divers going, some of them were friends, some of them were customers, 
to the Callum Bridge tonight, which is Europe's largest sunken wreck. It's just outside the harbour of Glandor. Mm. Would you take the boat? And I was supposed to get Emily and Haley ready for a disco. And I was pregnant, so I wasn't diving. Yeah. And uh, and it, I, he just said, it's such a nice evening. I would just love to dive. And I said, do you know what? I will. Go and get the boat ready. I'll drive down later. I'll come on board, take her out, and we'll just do it. Yeah. So I boarded the boat and I all I heard was Nick saying, hmm, it's not calibrating. And that's all I remember hearing. And then I heard, oh, it's working now. And so I jumped on board, took everybody out. Fabulous evening. It's strange. It turned into such a like horrific evening because you know when Ireland doesn't have any wind yeah. and the, the sky is blue, it's late in the day and there's no wind and it's just the rarest place in the whole planet, to yeah. me anyway. Yeah. And I'm heading out to sea with a glassy sea in front of me. Magical. You know, absolutely fabulous. And so I put the divers in and um, I dropped 11 in and then Nick with his buddy. And as I took the boat up above the sun to look down... Uh, to see if anyone had surfaced, I saw somebody waving. And that means not hello, it means there's a, an accident. Yeah. So I brought the boat alongside and somebody said to me, it's Nick. And I said, where is he? And he, they said, you, you call a chopper, call a chopper. And I said, where is he? And they said, he's convulsing on the bottom. Oh, my God. So I called the chopper. And it's strange, you know, I split in that moment. Yeah. I was capable and I just literally disassociated from what was happening. I had 11 people in the water. I needed to you make sure everyone was safe and yeah. I needed to get my husband back alive. Yeah. So I was like a, a fine-tuned instrument. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. chopper. I was lifeboat. I was getting updates. I was getting ETAs. Yeah. I was checking to see who was up and blah, blah, blah. They Eventually he came to the surface. Somebody had found him and he'd died under the water. So we recovered him. The chopper came and they took his body away. I am so sorry. Yeah. It was a, there aren't any words. No. You know? Mm. No. Yeah. Life changes in a split second, mm. you know, in those circumstances. Obviously, the rest of the, you know, few weeks afterwards was a free fall, you know, and um, probably don't have too much memory about it all. When you look back at that, moment now how because you know it's it's such an emotional incredible thing to hear and thank you for sharing are you still split in terms of your rational and your emotional in terms of the memory yeah no not anymore mm. um it took many years and it took a lot of work and actually a lot of yoga mm. Uh, to bring yourself back into the body. To bring myself yeah. back in. Um, talk therapy was helpful, mm. but it did not heal. Um, mm. It did not heal the PTSD that I was left with. Yeah. I couldn't see a helicopter for years, the sound of it, the movement of it. Yeah. Yoga was one of the healing forces that brought me back into my own body. I know that you're a big fan of that book, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, you know, that we hold the trauma until the body can release it. So... Moving back into your body, past the terrible traumatic shock of the of the PTSD of, of of losing not only your brother but you know your life partner at that point, and you were pregnant, mm. and so does a does a survival you know a mechanism kick in then, which is I have to protect this baby. I mean, is there a, is there a duality there of sort of mother to grieving human? Mm. 
Um, that is a very, very complex one to answer. Mm. My memory of it is that, I'll come at it another way. I will say, thank goodness that we are well designed. Thank goodness there yeah. is an instinct of survival in both in the mother and in the unborn child. Yeah. You know, we will do anything to survive. We're wired literally we to are. stay on this planet. Are, yeah. I I have shared a lot of this with Nicola and and made ma many apologies. Nicola's a wonderful 25-year-old woman now in her own right. She's incredible. But she was rejected by me emotionally in the tummy. Yeah. I had no capacity to offer anything to anyone else. I wanted to go to bed and mm. eat jam sandwiches and not speak to anyone. Yeah. And this bump in my tummy meant that I could not do that mm. metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. And I remember people coming to speak to me, the doctor and people saying, you need to protect your unborn child. To my shame now, but I, I have compassion for myself yeah, also. absolutely, no shame. I smoked and drank. Yeah. I could not stop smoking and I could not stop drinking. And I remember our local doctor coming and saying, you know, you're putting your child in danger. It wasn't that I was doing it consciously. I was on it's such a, a cortisol, yeah. adrenaline buzz that that was the only way I could. It was like, you know, I had no breath for life. I'd known anything. My mm. mind was so wired. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't get the images out of my head. Right. I couldn't, the sounds were in my cells and I couldn't sit still. And the only way I could actually, and I felt I was going to explode. Mm. And the only way I could tap into anything was to smoke and also to drink wine. Something about the wine released the pressure on an anesthetic. somehow. Yeah. yeah, it was an anesthetic. And I totally forgive myself. I was the most blown open person I oh, could ever imagine. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, you know, we have to have compassion for ourselves when we're suffering. We're doing the best that we can just to survive, you know. I, I, and, and I was 28. Yeah. How did you begin again? Mm. Again, again. Again, again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, the, these questions are so important to answer. Mm. And quite simply, by getting up, one foot in front of the other. And doing the washing up. Yeah. And I sometimes, I didn't know how I was going to get past 11 o'clock, to be honest. Yeah. You know, I had, after Nicola was born, um, we all know what happens. Yeah. It is the most disruptive, terrifying, and it doesn't go into a box and think wardrobe. It stays with you. And yeah. Nicola was extremely traumatised. Yeah. And, you know, really a fractious, fragmented child. She wailed constantly. It took right. her until she was five and a half to sleep. And so quite literally by being numb is I was reflecting on it actually mm. the other day. How did I do it? I think because I was so numb, mm. I literally was hypnotized almost just mm. literally pillar pose, pillar pose. And never did I, think, I expand my thoughts. I think that's what I was alluding to when I was talking about the rational and the emotional, you know, sort of the coping and the, 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 the brain stuff, you know, and then sort of divorced from the heart and the soul and the feeling stuff, you know, that we just go into this sort of uh, almost robotic state yeah. of sort of, and that's what yeah. you're describing. Sure. And that is, absolutely is a survival mechanism. 100%. Yeah. And it, it is, it's a guttural, you're being led by your gut almost because mm. you don't want to be dead. You'd, you Consciously, you're right. saying, I'd rather be dead. But instinctually, you don't want to be dead. Right. You want to be alive. And you want to not feel like this. Yeah. 
And the human mind is wired to move to pleasure and away from pain. That's yes. one of the laws of the mind. Yeah. But that wasn't happening for me. There was no escape from this, this, you know, myriad, this this bubble I was stuck in. It was a bubble of horror and darkness. Mm. The punctuation marks came sometimes in, you know, I, I said to somebody on another interview that grief is a bit like ABS breaking. You know when you break hard and, and the ABS kicks in, it goes da 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 Grief and shock, the brain is very well designed. So mm. occasionally I get this fantasy break that he's not dead. Right. For a split second. But it gave me some kind of sense that there's another universe there because I can experience it for one moment. Yeah. So what was happening was occasionally I would get this break. And I think that was a design in our instinct because I'd forget he was dead for maybe 30 seconds. And that brought you solace. Just, but they were literally those moments with as short as 30 seconds for so long. And something as simple as um, sipping a glass of wine. Mm. The actual taste yeah. it would anchor me. They were the smallest points. Yeah, and to a previous I memory be or something. I didn't, yeah. I didn't want anyone to touch me because yeah. I wasn't even alive in my body. So I was using artificial means, but I think that my innate instinct for survival dragged me. It was ahead of me, pulling me along for a long time. These life lessons, and we talked about this the first time we met, the, you know, and I said, you know, sometimes we refer to them as the dark gifts, you know, the, illumina the illumination of other experiences and other worlds that help us to connect. And I'd mm. said to you, how important is it to tell your story? And you, both, you and I both agree, fundamental, mm. because of those connecting points to other people's pain. One of those, you know, assurities in life is suffering. You know, we are not here to live in a pleasure dome. You know, we are yes. here to, 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 to meander through and, and sometimes be thrust into those undulations, right, between, yes. between life and death and these enormous challenges. You have, in the meantime, and I know there's another bit of the story that we need to talk about, but in the meantime, you have become a bit of an explorer in neuroscience, hypnotherapy, mm. the grief processes, mm. you know, and all of these things that the, the dark gifts illuminated from you. Can we just start there? And I think we might work back then to what was the catalyst into all of this. What have you learned in terms of the exploration of the brain that mm. these things have helped you, these, these things have been on your path to help illuminate. Mm. What do you know? Well, what I know to be true is, as I said earlier, we're extremely well designed. Mm. And when we don't have the capacity for making change or when we don't have the capacity to help ourselves, we can trust that we're being held in a space mm. until we can, unless it's totally catastrophic. Right. And, you know, I always quote this um, that the human spirit is stronger than anything that can happen to it. And that encompasses basically my belief. Yeah. I have lost people, my body, my safety, and my mind. Yeah. And yet, even though all of those things happened, in retrospect, I know that actually there was a part of me that was always well. And this sounds really strange to say. No, it doesn't. It's a kernel inside of you. Of you know, Some people talk about it as light or however they may do. I mean, you, despite those things, the worst of the worst of the worst that we could ever imagine, despite those things, you're here. Mm. 
I'm here. And, and you're luminescent. And I shouldn't be. No. I shouldn't be. There are so many events that happen after that that I shouldn't be. So what I know to be true is that we can trust. Mm. If we can trust this well-designed body. And protect it we're, as best we're we actually, can. Yes. Yeah. And protect it as best we can. That we will actually, we don't have to fight our way. Yeah. We don't have to be constantly exerting energy and losing anything that we've acquired, that we must quite simply follow the animal kingdom. This is what I, I know mm, to be true. Mm. They go under a, a bush and they lick their wounds and they stay there, they shake, and they take care of themselves. They do not go running around the savannah. Mm. And I think intuitively I was trying to do that. I was trying to go to bed. I was yeah, trying to disappear. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to go yeah. under my rock yeah. until it was okay for me to come out again. Right. So I know these things to be true. And... How do we encompass that when somebody's struggling now? How do we help people to do that? Yeah. Well, one thing we do is we we show up with that belief that we can trust that they're going to be okay. Yeah. And that we show up as a solid anchor point, that we don't talk necessarily, that we don't offer any solutions, that we just are a rock Beside the person. You talk in nautical terms and it's so interesting. You talk in sea terms, you know. It, of course, it makes such it makes so much sense. You know, we're cast adrift. There are challenges. Um, and we need a rock or an anchor. I remember the most, uh, uh, after um, uh, finding my uh, husband a best friend in a relationship together, a 17-year marriage ended cataclysmically overnight, what I found was my best friends came to me and they came to me, and at the time, I, now they tell me it was kind of almost, you know, we, we sh they didn't know if it should be a suicide watch or something like yes. that, you know. But they, they, were, they anchored into me in a physical sense. When I did exactly what you said, I went to ground, and I went to ground and also hit the wine and all of the rest of it, mm. you know, mm. until I could sort of start through therapy and did PTSD therapy to kind of come out of that. Mm. Um, and that, again, for when you have those those kind of um, in, enormous PTSD shocks, you, you're you're not using able to use any rational brain of I'm going to be okay. You don't know you're going to be okay. I, I really want to touch on what happened to you next because you talked there, you mentioned that your body stopped working for you. Mm. Would yeah. you mind sharing that part with us? Yeah, sure. Um, Nicola was about four or five and I wasn't able to sleep. Yeah. I was trapped in this horror bubble. I was very distant from people. I was pretending to be okay and I never slept and I had no peace. So mm. when I started to lose the use of my left hand, jumping into the car or I started to drive on the wrong side of the road, just periodically, like snap little tiny things, I took no notice. I right. was so miserable. I just was miserable. Yeah. And my whole, the whole part of my brain that was, you know, lateral thinking wasn't even, I was living elementally. So I took no notice of it really. And even when, I shared this with you before, even when I lost the use of my leg at night, every single night, it would just literally go limp. I would have to crawl to Nicola to take care of her. She didn't sleep and give her a bottle. I crawled down the corridor to Nicola's room and back to my bed and never once said, this is nuts just didn't occur to you weren't operating in a, in a, no, in a normal in another environment. World. Yeah. So, and it's so sad to think that a young woman just yeah. didn't know that that wasn't normal. And so it all came to a head 
when Nicola found me unconscious on the floor. Yeah. And I got an ambulance. My mother came and a doctor came and an ambulance came and I was rushed to hospital. And it transpired that I had a very large growing benign brain tumour that was going to kill me. God, Rachel. <laughs> I know. I like to do drama. Lolly. You really I do. do. <laughs> I, like, I like it interesting. I don't like to be bored. <laughs> okay, we have five minutes left, so I don't want to <laughs> lose a second of this story. Yikes. Okay. How did you... How did you manifest from that to this? What was the what? How did that show up in it, in it, in its entirety for you? Mm. And how did you now get to be sitting in front of me, effervescent and luminescent? <laughs> it was a long journey. Yeah, and I had to go lower and lower and lower until I actually hit rock bottom. And we talk about hitting rock bottom. Mm. There were many many events after. You may that. have thought you were there before. I thought I'd been yeah. there before, but I yeah. hadn't. Yeah, I. At one point, I was on a lot of prescription medication. I became paralysed. I had to recover from that. But it was when my mind turned against me, when I was faced with the darkness, the horror of the evilness of my own mind, sitting on the stairs, and it was suggesting that it might be a good idea that I didn't live anymore, nor did Nicola and my mum. Mm. That's the moment, funny enough. You can say the horror of horrors. But it was that battle that ensued between me and the darkness, that yeah. was the turning point of me finding that foundation. I'd gone to the bottom. That's where the pearl is it was the in the oyster. Bar. It was the yeah. springboard for me coming back. I I couldn't have found any more strength than I took to to refute that suggestion. Yeah. I couldn't find any more steel. I'd hit my steel. Yeah. And I started to come up from there. It was a long recovery. It was years of recovery. Yeah. But there was one day on the 24th of May, 2013, when actually I smiled voluntarily for the first time in probably maybe three or four years. I hadn't left my home. I was agoraphobic. I was coming off medication. Mm. And it was really bad. But that was a turning point. And by goodness, every time I say that date, it's like my heart expands. It was the beginning of the comeback and yeah. the real comeback. And so I worked very hard yeah. and I reconnected with my body. I trained my mind. I ate healthily. I tried to sleep. Yeah. I reached out. I went to therapy. You name it. I was on that road and I was convinced I could make it. This, I don't want to use the word resilience because it's bandied around far too much, but this grit, this idea of this integral pearl inside of us. Um, that is our true essence, the thing that we are wired through evolution to survive with, mm. this idea of, of, of true light. Mm. Why were you given all these gifts? Mm. Yeah. I, I have so many answers to that. Mm. And I like to think that because I was able for it. I completely agree. I like to think that. I also like to think that I was course corrected. Mm. I had, to, like all of us when we're younger, issues. I had very strange ways of being. And I remember quickly at one point after Nick died, I remember saying to somebody, I don't even know who I am anymore and I don't like who I am. Yeah. And the beauty about it is, because I've had to form and reconnect and make a new person, I feel as if I've kind of designed who I am. I actually like who I am, Lolly. 
I like you. Thank you. I like you too. <laughs> you know, and I think that's that's it. So we're talking then about showing up authentically, you know, and the thing that most of us struggle with is this idea of performativity and and not being able to show up authentically. If you were to give advice to people listening, and before we go, do say again, please, the name of your book, because I would love everyone to go around that and read it. What is the advice that you have for us to show up more authentically and why is it important? Mm. It's it's so important to show up authentically. How many of us have met veneers and how many of mm. us have met people who are all sorted to go away feeling empty and to go away feeling less than because you aspire to being like them? Um, it is so important. We we live in a world now... Get one chance at this. You get one chance. Yeah. And we live in a world where everything is a veneer. Yeah. And the whole point about it is we are humans. We are, we are meant to be in community and we're meant to connect. Absolutely. So be brave and just start one little thing and go, do you know what? That's my opinion. Or do you know what? I don't feel great today. Or what, what will happen if I don't do this? Yeah. You know, yeah. Re- lean in. And give it a go. Lean in and give it a go. And guess what? There are people like Lolly and Rachel and hundreds (laughs) of thousands of us who are really wanting to connect with you because people are done with um, veneers and, and, you know, competition. We just want to be people together. I love that. Let's just all be humans. Rachel Gatto, what is the name of your book? Flying on the Inside. And can people order it from online? Uh, Amazon. Amazon. Wonderful. Flying on the Inside. It's been my absolute pleasure. Rachel Gotto, if people want to connect to you on LinkedIn, is that okay? G-O-T-T-O. And uh, Rachel is available for all sorts of things, including hypnotherapy and speaking and presenting. And it's just been an absolute marvellous hour. Thank you so much. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you for sharing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.